Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I visited the amazing Brooklyn's Museum at Weybridge, former site of the racetrack and Vickers Weybridge Aircraft Factory. And there, I spoke with Andrew Lewis, the museum's curator, and also I spoke with New Zealander Alan Wynne, who's the former director of Brooklyn's and is vice chairman of the Brooklyn's Trust. I'm at Brooklyn's Museum and I'm with Andrew Lewis. Hi Andrew. Hi. And we're standing on the mezzanine floor looking across at the top of uh, Vickers Wellington. Absolutely fantastic. Would this be one of the key major pride pieces of the museum? Absolutely. I mean, there are literally only two uh, Wellington bombers remaining of the the 12,000 odd that were built um, throughout the Second World War. Um, and this is the only one surviving which actually saw active service, and the other one being a, a sort of late war trainer that never actually went into operation. Right, right. Now this is the famous Loch Ness Wellington. It was pulled out of Loch Ness, wasn't it? Yeah, it was indeed. Um, found by a, a couple of American Loch Ness monster hunters um, in the early 80s, um, and they're valued for, for its, its history as a, a serving Wellington. Um, it was raised out of Loch Ness in 1985, uh, brought back to its home at Brooklands as one of the first exhibits um, in, in the kind of um, very early stages of Brooklands Museum. And then uh, 100,000 volunteer hours went into restoring her back into the, the condition she's in today. Well, I mean, it, it looks, it, it's not in pristine condition, but it looks so original. It, it looks fantastic. 
as with all these projects, there's always that kind of um, balance to be struck between where you stop in terms of originality and and kind of um, shiny perfection. Um, Brooklyn's, we always tend to go for as much originality as possible. And we also, during the restoration process, um, the people that were working on it were very keen to be able to show off that unique geodetic structure that sits beneath the, the fabric skin of the Wellington and to, um, so, so our visitors can, can see the, why the Wellington was particularly so special. Right, of course. And Brooklyn's been at Weybridge, has a deep connection with Vickers, don't they? Absolutely. Uh, Vickers uh, came to Brooklyn's first in 1915 uh, in terms of manufacturing. They were here a little bit before that with, with the flying school. And um, they stayed producing here um, throughout the 20th century, basically, um, all the way from the, the very early days of, of building BE2s under contract um, from the Royal Aircraft Establishment and all the way through, uh, ultimately, in the, the later forms as a British, part of the British Aircraft Corporation and British Aerospace Building um, Concorde. Right. And there's a Concorde just outside there? There is indeed. So yeah, Brooklyn's um, built more of Concorde than anywhere else. So a third of every um, Concorde that was built, including the French assembled ones, was was built at Brooklyn's. Okay, I didn't realise that they were all built in different places. I knew that France built some and Britain built some, but were there different factories within Britain building? Yeah, so Brooklyn's was responsible for basically everything forward of the the leading edge of the wing and everything um, from the training edge of the wing. Okay. Um, so front and aft sections, um, then the, I have to get this right, but it's, uh, so the centre section was mostly built in Toulouse. Um, some bits were done at F- uh, Filton um, over near Bristol, but um, that was mainly a, a, just for the British side of assembly. Okay, oh, interesting. Um, so can you take me back to the beginning of the museum? When did this first become a museum after being you know, a manufacturing base for so long? Yeah, it all very much overlapped with the... Um, with the closure of the factories, so um, the initial movement was um, to Brooklyn's first, sort of first history as a, a motor racing circuit, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which obviously ran very much hand in hand with um, development of aviation in the early days. Um, but as the factories slowly wound down, um, particularly through the 80s, um, local movements um, began to spring up to make sure that there was a long-term way of preserving the site um, and its stories. Um, initially from a motoring perspective, but then increasingly um, to include the, the aviation history too. Because um, at that point it was kind of a very modern history. Um, it was, hadn't been seen as being quite so important as it is. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so about 1984, 85, the land was sold up by the um, by uh, British Aerospace. Yeah. Um, and um, the council and uh, various other enthusiast groups came together to to form the, the prototype Brooklyn's Museum, which then started to open up in stages, um, opening uh, permanently in 1991. Okay, all right. I didn't realise it was so recent. I mean, most of the museums you come across are started in the 60s or something like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely, so. and that's one of the challenges we've had in um, trying to sort of bring exhibits in. But it was it, it, when other museums were springing up, this was very much a, a hub of industry. And, and in the 60s, it was they were employing 14,000 people and, and still building aeroplanes. Wow, okay. Now, um, you mentioned about aircraft were being built here at Brooklyn's, but the Wellington, there were Wellingtons built here, weren't there? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, about 2,000 of the, the Wellingtons were built here. But this was very much the centre of, uh, of Vickers at the time, so all the design work and development work was being done at Brooklyn. So Barnes-Wallace on the geodetic side, 
and then Rex Pearson as, a, as the chief designer were all based at Brooklands or um, dispersed outside of Brooklands after bombing raids just to keep everybody safe and separated from the main factory site. Um, this is where all that was happening, as well as the, the kind of production line going on um, in, the, in the factory. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Rex Pearson, because uh, I think because of a certain Dam Busters film, everyone thinks that Barnard Wallace was the designer of the Wellington, but Absolutely. Rex Pearson was actually the chief designer, wasn't he? He was indeed, and Rex Pearson is very much one, of, to my mind, one of the undersung aircraft designers of that period. Yeah. Um, his work um, on not just the Wellington, but um, from starting with the Vimy, progressing all the way through to the Viscount, is um, is quite incredible. Um, the, the range and breadth, and certainly should be up in the same level as people like Cam and, yes. and Mitchell. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, the Wellington, as it's, uh, in itself, was you know uh, quite a remarkable bomber in that it was pre-war, but it continued right the way through the war. You look at all the other things that were coming online when this was coming online, they were really obsolete by the mid-war period, weren't they? Absolutely. It was an incredibly versatile aircraft. Um, so, yeah, it's the only twin-engined or multi-engined aircraft to serve with the RAF all the way through the Second World War, um, right the way to the end. And, yeah, very much in testament to its, its versatility. So it went from frontline bomber at the beginning of the war um, to then um, being a great sort of support aircraft, very much with coastal command in the later period of the war. It was also used for social rescue, for transport. Um, if you could just turn its hand to anything effectively, I think the only thing it failed at was uh, as a glider tug because the, the geodetic started to unwind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you get the stretch version. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's great. Um, tell me about we're actually in the uh, aircraft factory hangar. Um, is this actually a, an original hangar that was the aircraft factory? Indeed. So um, I mentioned very briefly before that um, there was a quite a serious bombing raid on the factory in September 1940. Yeah. At the time, it was it was the, uh, the most serious uh, raid on a, a factory to that point of the war. Um, about 90 people were, were unfortunately killed and many others injured. Um, and that was in part due to the, the, the Vickers uh, works being very concentrated site and unfortunately next to this great big concrete oval of a racetrack um, which was never an easy thing to conceal and it's on a river and it's on a railway line yeah. so possibly the worst possible place to have a strategic target yeah. um, so their solution was to spread out the production as much as possible firstly out into the surrounding area so um, various other businesses um, that had the space and capacity or machine shops were taken up by Vickers and started making components um, and then the assembly lines at Brooklands were spread out as much as possible. And this hangar is an example of a, a, a Bellman transportable hangar, um, which was quickly erected on um, the finishing straight of the track. So a number of them popped up, actually built into the surface of the track. Right. A, firstly, because it um, helps obscure the track. Yep. So it helps to hide the fact that this is where Brooklands is. Um, and also just because there's this great big surrounding space around the, the factory yeah, is yeah. a perfect solution. Oh, wow, okay, interesting. And, and so in this hangar there's uh, demonstrations of different eras of aircraft manufacture. I was just having a look around and it's it's really, really, really well done. I mean, you know, you, you go to some museums it's just all clutter. But I, I love the fact you've got the fabric shop, you know, you've got all the different uh, parts of how an aircraft is put together. And um, I just wanted to say that 
looks great. It's 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 interesting. And I, I was really pleased to see sewing machines down there. That was part of my trade in the uh, RNZF. Um, I was safety and surface trade, and we did all the upholstery stuff and fabric work. So yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, what we wanted to do when we started on this project um, was to. I mean, first thing to say is uh, Brooklyn's museum is not an aviation museum, it's not a motor museum, it's a museum of Brooklyn's mm. and the amazing things that happened here and the people that did them. So what we, we did, um, so we'd identified that the hangar um, was in quite poor condition. Um, it was grade two listed, which meant that we had a duty to preserve it. Yep. Um, it's the last one of these Bellman hangars that were built on the site surviving. Okay. So, as it's a transportable hangar, um, it was, at this point, theoretically possible to take it down, restore it all, and then re-erect it. And and then, very much our aim was to turn it into a museum of the aircraft factory. Um, Because that is what Brooklyn's best best known for in in terms of aviation. So we wanted not just to have a collection of aircraft that related to Brooklyn's, which is what we had originally in the hangar in its previous form, but was just to be able to tell that story of how aircraft were built here in the period spanning right from the very earliest days of aviation in Britain in 1907, 1908, right through to, to supersonic airliners and Concorde, yep. um, and beyond into the composite era. Um, and to try and compare and contrast the, the technologies that existed um, and how, that, how rapidly that advanced in just a matter of, sort of 60, 70, 80 years. Um, it, it's very much um, a testament to the people that worked at the aircraft factory and made it um, Europe's biggest centre of aircraft production of the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely, well done. Um, one thing I also noticed is there's aircraft that look like they're on the on the factory floor. There's uh, like half-built aircraft and like sections of aircraft. It, it, it's really good to get an, uh, the insight of what goes into building an aircraft. Yeah, that's, again, it's kind of combined with our plan of trying to make it feel a little bit like an aircraft factory. Mm. I mean, we're recording today, so we haven't got it switched on at the moment, but we have normally this um, soundscape, um, which turns this sort of empty hangar into a factory, just the sound of tools rattling away in the background and, and workers chatting in the distance. It brings it back alive as as a place of aircraft production, which is what it wants to be. Yeah. And we tried to plan in our visitors' experience as much as possible to make it um, immersive. So when they arrive in the, the factory building here, they are given a clocking card. They can clock in at the beginning. And then there's a little trail, which is modelled on the way that apprentices at Brooklyn's learnt their trade. So you spend a brief time in each area of, of the factory. As you mentioned before, we've got the fabric shop, the carpentry shop, yep. uh, everything up to composites and tin smithing and machining. Um, the idea is you go around to each of those areas, um, you get used to the hands-on interactives we have on, on what we call the factory floor area of the exhibition. And you collect stamps and build up your card and, and experience what it's like to, to build an aeroplane as much as possible. Right. And before obviously clocking out at the end of your shift. <laughs> Have you got uh, a favourite uh, among the collection of either the aircraft or any other exhibit? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to beat the Wellington for me. And one of my favourite and most privileged parts of working here over the last 12 years has been seeing um, some of the few surviving Wellington veterans come in and be able to see a Wellington again for the first time in 50, 60 years in some cases. Um, And for what was such a big part of their life, for them to be able to revisit that and 
and in some ways it's a joyous occasion other times it's very emotional yeah, I can um, sadly that naturally becomes a de- declining thing uh, we, we don't get as many of them as we used to yes um, but being able to see that connection um, between people and their, their early lives and the fact that it's just a, a special almost unique machine um, in the world and yeah. such a big part of Brooklyn's history yeah uh, it's, it's a little bit more accessible than the other one um, well, I, actually, last time I saw it was in Hendon, but I know it's moved now, so I'm not sure exactly how accessible it is now. Yeah, so they've, they've, it's been in restoration at RF Cosford, um, the, the RF Museum there, for well, at least 10, maybe nearly 15 years. Yeah. It's just come back out. So yeah. now, unfortunately, we can't say this is the only one on display in the world. There is now another one on display. Um, we always just do have to point out the fact that theirs is, uh, was built as a training aircraft and then converted to look like a, an operational aircraft, yes. whereas ours is the real deal. Um, but yeah, it's now back on display at RF Cosford and we'll Great. be staying that way. Cool, I'm going to see that in a few weeks then. Yeah, it looks uh, fab. Yeah. Uh, with, with your one, it's great that you can walk right up to it and look inside. You can look underneath the wings and up into the wings. and Yeah, it's a magnificent artefact. Absolutely, and again, it's one of our kind of um, motivations at Brooklyn is, is, is to get people as close as possible um, to our objects as they can safely um, so they can really get a feel for them and, and, and see them as much detail as possible. Yeah, just to follow up on your question about which is my favourite, just to be fair and, and not side my loyalties with the aviation side of the collection, I'll also drop in um, my favourite motoring exhibit because it does have an aviation link. Yeah. Um, so the Napier Routon um, is the star of our motoring collection. Okay. Um, it was designed and built at Brooklands to be raced by a guy called John Cobb, who later went on to break the world speed record. Yeah. Um, and it was basically the ultimate Brooklands car. It was designed specifically to break the outer circuit lap record here, which it did, and it still holds today. An average speed of 143.44 miles an hour. Okay. Um, it went out to Bonneville um, Salt Flats in 1936 and averaged 150 miles an hour flat out for 24 hours. Wow. So, incredible machine. Um, but the important thing about it um, from, from this point of view is that it is powered by an aero engine. It has a 24-litre, 12-cylinder Napier line aero engine. Right. Um, and um, so it's, it's, it sort of sits across our collection in terms of motoring and aviation. Um, and it also, um, after its racing career, post-Second World War, um, it was used by GQ Parachutes, um, okay. uh, just down at Dunsfield Park, just south of here, to test um, aircraft braking parachutes. Oh, really? So they strapped a big rig on the back of it, ran it down the runway at 150 miles an hour and, and popped the chutes out the back. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, so how did they keep it going for 24 hours? I think average speed, including stops for fuel driver changes, ah, okay. uh, fueling, that kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's going to be yeah. a hell of a, a mission to keep it going. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's cool, and I'll have to find that. Where is it, Kate? That's over in the, in the motor village, just over the other side, um, in uh, what we call the R ratio, which is the big green one. Okay, cool. I, I noticed today that it's, it's a very, yeah, there's a lot of cars in the car park, there's a lot of people around, it's a very busy day. This is a Thursday. I don't think it's school holidays or anything, is it? There's no, no. A lot no, of school groups, though. Uh, Thursdays are always kind of a busy day for the museum. That's okay. when we get most of our volunteer maintenance um, teams in. So those looking after the cars and motorcycles are predominantly on a Thursday. A couple of the aeroplane teams as well. Um, but we are very reliant on our volunteers here. Um, we have quite a small staff um, for the size of the museum, but we have about 700 active volunteers on our books, doing everything from maintaining our exhibits to stewarding the exhibition spaces, 
leading tour groups and, and maintaining the site and the grounds. So um, yeah, we couldn't couldn't do it without them. Okay. I, I also will say that uh, every building I've walked into as I've been wandering around, there's always very friendly, polite people saying hello and can I help and telling you stuff. It's, it's great, great team. Yeah, they're a fantastic bunch and, and so many of them are, are so passionate about the subject, it really does rub off on the visitors. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Uh, one of the first places I went into was the big testing chamber that Barnes Wallace uh, set up. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So, um, Barnes Wallace, we mentioned as the designer of the geodetic structure in the, um, in the Wellington. Um, so he, he joined the Vickers Aviation Department from the Airships Division up in Barrow um, in uh, it was about 1435, um, specifically to develop this um, geodetic structure for aircraft use. So he started off with the Wellesley as a, a long-range light bomber and then that developed into the Wellington, the, the Warwick, which was a, basically a bigger Wellington, and the, uh, the Windsor, which is a great big, huge thing, which never really got very far, unfortunately. Um, but post-war, um, after his success on his side projects with um, the upkeep bouncing bomb and the, the Torboyne Grand Slam earthquake bombs, um, he was put in charge of um, Vickers' research and development department uh, based at Brooklands, um, running out of the former motorsport clubhouse in the centre of the site here. And um, basically given freedom to pursue his, his interests and his goals and see, see what he could achieve. Um, his ultimate aim was to try and create first supersonic, then potentially looking at hypersonic aircraft to be able to fly to Australia in in a few hours. Um, so I think he was looking at three or four hours by the end. Okay. Um, so the first stage of his, his research project was to identify that um, he needed to be able to test aircraft in the conditions they'd need to fly in um, to reach those speeds and, and to span those distances. Um, he was very much um, impacted by the results of, of the, the famous Dambusters raid mm-hmm. and the loss of so many Allied air crews, so many of whom he, he'd known personally. And so he had this kind of resolution that he wouldn't endanger any airmen for the rest of his career. So rather than doing these risky high-altitude testing flights, he designed this huge testing chamber um, which we could replicate the, the conditions of the stratosphere at 70,000 feet. Yeah. So it goes down to about one-tenth of atmospheric pressure and can be reduced to minus 70 degrees Celsius um, in order to test pressure cycles of aircraft ascending and descending. So kind of ahead of the curve of what the aircraft industry was going to discover with things like the comet disaster and the metal fatigue. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was kind of already seeing that the more testing was going to be needed in, into the jet age. Um, and it was used successfully by, um, by both the Vickers team here um, to test some of their um, products. So they had the um, sections of um, the VC-10, the Viscount and the Vanguard in there testing things like um, door icing and, and other things. They could replicate um, rain and snow and ice in there as well as just atmospheric temperatures and, and pressures. And um, they also brought in um, lots of clients from around British industry, um, not only on aviation side with Supermarine, um, so they had a complete CVIX and a complete scimitar in there at one stage, which gives you an idea of the scale of this yeah. chamber, yeah. Um, with the wings folded being naval aircraft. Um, and um, 
and also across the Navy, testing things like um, ship bridges or torpedo launchers in icy cold conditions, yep. um, right even to trying to develop a safer, safer form of rigging for Arctic um, fishing trawlers, because right. uh, they were finding that the, the ice was building up on the rigging and causing them to capsize. Oh, okay. So we did a series of tests on scale models in a big water tank inside the chamber, um, and developed a new way of, of, um, of the developing the cabling so they were less likely to capsize. It's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much innovation that's gone on in this place over the years, I guess. And where is it all now? I mean, you'd say British Aerospace sold the place off, and where, where's the centre of innovation now? Exactly. I mean, that's something that we're really looking to um, develop the museum with in the future, is to use these in stories of innovation and inspiration from Brooklyn's past to... Um, inspire the next generations of innovators. Yeah. So we've just started a scheme called the Brooklyn's Innovation Academy um, last year, which brings in about 400 school children, um, secondary school age, um, to get them to work with um, engineering and manufacturing companies um, to show them what they can do with a, with a career in science and engineering. Yeah. Um, and what they could achieve and hopefully inspire them with some of our stories um, which went really well last year so that's going to be an ongoing thing for the future Excellent um, Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's always difficult it's harder to see the innovation that's going on around us today but yeah. it is out there yeah. when you look at some of the projects that are going on in terms of um, electric powered aircraft um, and yeah, um, even um, satellite industry around us down here in in um, with sorry satellites, there's, yeah. there's all kinds of amazing stuff still happening out there. It's just um, less high profile than it used to be, unfortunately. Yeah, true. Uh, um, is there anything that was developed at Brooklands that isn't in the in the collection that you'd love to have in the collection? Any aircraft type or? I mean, just because I went up to RF Cosford yesterday to um, to pick up some some bits for us, then um, we do only have a small item of TSR two, okay. uh, which is one of the, Probably one of the iconic aircraft in Brooklyn that really does define a change in, in Brooklyn's fortunes. Mm -hmm. uh, designed to be the, the tactical strike bomber of the future yeah. with this amazing specification, um, which has put it at, at the forefront of, of um, aviation for, for decades. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, um, the cost running too high because of its high spec and um, the project cancelled, which really did... Um, show the turning point in Brooklyn's fortunes and it's at that point where the British aviation industry as a whole starts to decline um, that alongside with the V1000 in the civil side of things um, which led to British Airways buying in American aircraft rather than British built aircraft um, it, um, yeah that's kind of where, where the fortunes start to pivot to one of decline so uh, another story which I think is, is very relevant to you and your listeners is, is Hilda Hewlett. Um, so she um, became the first uh, British woman to receive a UK pilot's licence okay. yeah. um, in about 1912. Um, she co-founded the uh, first flying school in Britain at Brooklands in about 1911. Okay. Um, and she also then um, went into aircraft manufacturing with a business partner, th partner throughout the, the First World War, um, building lots of aircraft contract. Um, so she's an amazing character who um, basically started off as a, a kind of society lady, um, fairly middle-aged, married to a successful novel novelist, um, but then just became entranced by aviation, having seen the first British 
flying demonstration at the back yeah. um, she fell in love and from that point on she, she had to fly okay. so she started off by going out to France uh, which was the only place she could learn to fly at that point because um, Britain was still behind the continent at that stage yep. and um, yeah went into this amazing career in, in early aviation um, including um, teaching her own son to fly um, before he went off to join the RFC and thankfully surviving the First World War, Okay, uh, right. which would have been a, a, a much more serious story otherwise. Yes. Um, but the interesting thing particularly is that she retired out to New Zealand. Oh. So after her, um, her exploits during the First World War in aircraft manufacturing, she, um, she decided post-war to get out of the business as, as aviation was um, demand was dropping inevitably after after more time yeah. and yeah she um, headed over to New Zealand for, for a retirement right okay so want to want to look into a bit more yeah I will I'll, I'll look her up yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah thanks well thanks very much Andrew no problem at all Cheers. I can hand you over to our work <laughs> we'll go and see uh, McLaren <laughs> I'm Dave hi Dave good nice to meet you. you yeah so you're a former director of... Yeah, I, I was uh, director, chief executive here from 2003 to 2018. Okay. And I'm now a vice president of the uh, Museum Trust. Trust, yes. Okay. Yeah. So you would have seen a few changes over that time, I guess. Uh, a huge number of changes uh, made here. Obviously, the, this is one of the biggest ones. This this hangar until 2016 was standing 100 metres away, yep. uh, semi-derelict, and now it's the uh, the exhibition that you see, which was um, yeah the biggest single project of my time here amongst uh, an enormous number of uh, projects, which included getting a Concorde here, yep. um, restoring the stratosphere chamber, uh, yeah, and turning the place around financially so that it paid for itself. Uh, being a few of the things that we tackled. Well, well done. And um, I should mention, I believe that you're a New Zealander. I am a New Zealander, yes. Yeah. I, I uh, even studied a bit of aeronautical engineering at uh, University of Canterbury. Oh, right. uh, got a mechanical engineering degree. Um, aeronautical was my major subject um, from there. But I uh, then, because I couldn't find uh, the job, that would satisfy me in New Zealand engineering. I went back to Canterbury and did a, a, a diploma in journalism. Okay. And yep. that got me a travel grant, a travel scholarship to come to the UK. Yep. That was 49 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you ever get back to New Zealand at all? I was back there in uh, February, actually. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So For the first time in quite a few years. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but that led me... Uh, that that journalism diploma led me into running a series of engineering and transportation magazines uh, culminated in me running Flight International uh, for 14 years uh, first as editor and then as publisher so um, yeah and uh, it was from uh, when that job finished uh, that's when uh, I was already associated with uh, with Brooklyn's I'd been asked to chair the Friends Associate, what was then the Friends Association, uh, back in 1996. And then seven years later, I got the phone call to say, um, understand you're looking for a job. Uh, would you have lunch with me? So, uh, and uh, out of that uh, came the job to run the place. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. So, um, uh, Andrew and I were just talking about this hangar and how it sort of is an aircraft factory and it demonstrates how aircraft are built in all the different sections yeah. from 
fabric and wood yeah. and everything. It's really well laid out and really well uh, sort of thought out of how to explain aviation to anyone who's just stepping in to this. I mean, you must get a lot of people who know nothing about aviation coming here. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, and, and and our idea was that there's there's lots of aviation museums around the place with dead aeroplanes, um, but nobody was talking about how they're designed and developed, and therefore n- none of the other aviation museums was really tackling the thing of how do you inspire the next generation to get involved in designing, making, whether it's aeroplanes or refrigerators, you know, the, the, the museums were about, you know, sort of, these are the things we did in the past, and what we're saying is, these are the things that were done in the past, now, use that to inspire the, the next generation, yep. and that was the that was the driving force behind trying to do something special, uh, and, you know, it, it turned out to be a unique, uh, unique exhibition, uh, there's no other uh, aviation exhibition like this, which which tells the story of 80 years of aircraft design manufacture um, on this site, but also points to the future and is really aimed. You know, uh, I just saw a group of um, uh, of people from a care home uh, seeing how you rivet bits of uh, metal together. But we had we had a whole bunch of school kids in here earlier yeah, yeah. doing exactly the same thing. Now that you know those school kids, I hope will go away thinking I could do that. Yep. Not necessarily designing an aeroplane, but they might think, yeah, I could I could make something, you know, to do to do another task. Having seen how you stick an aeroplane together, I could use that in some other way. Exactly. And if that makes kids want to do science and engineering, bit of technology, um, and then they're not lost to the engineering industries, then. That's our job done. Yes, absolutely. No, that's a it's a really really good way to operate, as far as I'm concerned, because we we really need people to come to the aviation into the industry for the future, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. it's getting harder and harder. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I just know so many people who are short of you know, companies that are short of um, the the engineers they should be training up. Exactly. Yeah, we yeah. keep hearing about the pilot shortage, but they yeah. forget there's a massive engineering yeah, shortage yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, traditionally, a lot of the engineers in in uh, civil aviation come from air force training. But yep. there's yep. a lot less air force being trained. Yeah, as well, yeah. So. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, especially in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you got a favourite exhibit in the museum or something that you're most proud of? It's really difficult, you know, mm. which one's your favourite child. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm enormously inspired by this Wellington. I think, you know, it's a, and again, it's an extraordinary exhibit. You know, it's a whole history in one thing, you know. It's, it's the story of Barnes Wallace's uh, design inspiration on the structure. Uh, it, this is a story of an aeroplane which had real people in it and, and was ditched in Loch Ness. And it's a story of, you know, recovering it and the 100,000-plus man-hours of work that went into putting it back together like this so that people can still see what it is. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm also enormously proud of uh, Concord because uh, that, that was... The Wellington came here before I did. Yes. Uh, Concord was... Yeah, that that was the defining project uh, of my early time here. You know, I, 
I led the team that, that got the aeroplane in the first place and fought all the battles right. on how to take it apart and put it back together and how we would do it. Fantastic input by a team of volunteers you know, who, who came up with a lot of the, uh, the solutions and so forth. Um, but yeah, I'm really proud of what we did with Concorde and then got the Concorde simulator uh, running as well. Um, but, uh, but I'm also, uh, I'm, I'm so proud of our um, Vickers Vimy replica, because you know, that, that was something that I, I fought battles with the CAA to keep it flying. Yeah. And then when we lost that battle, um, you know, I, I, I fought the whole thing of getting it here. Uh, it was in this building initially and then you know, creating its own, uh, own building, all that sort of thing. That's a project that's really close to my heart. Um, but this whole, yeah, this whole aircraft factory and the flight shed beyond it. Yeah, um, yeah though, well, that's the one I spent nine million quid on. <laughs> um, and so it really is, yeah, I, I, if, if my time here was to be summed up by anything, probably, you know, Concorde, getting Concorde here saved the museum financially. Uh, and then this, this exhibition put us on the map internationally. Okay. And I think those are the those are the things that I'm proudest of. So is Concorde still that bigger draw that it's um, you know people come just to see Concorde? Or? People come just to see Concorde. Wow. Um, people fly from all around the world just to fly the simulator. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah we've had people, you know, Qantas captains. We had a we had a test pilot from Boeing flew over just to fly the simulator right. and flew home again. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, yeah, we get people who come here because. There's a Concorde here. That's fantastic. Uh, there's a few museums around the world who have Concords, and there's a few that have space shuttles, and they seem to be like the the next level tier of museums, aren't they? They're, they're like all the top museums. Uh, it, it's it's a bit of a um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of badge of honour to have mm, a Concorde, yeah, you know, because I mean, yeah, Brit, British Airways still had eight um, uh, Concords. Yep. Ours was a complete wreck. Because uh, they'd just been stripped for spares. Oh, right. um, yeah, it, it hadn't. Fl- it it was um, it, it was never in full airline service. It was only ever used as a trials aeroplane, and it last flew in 1981. And since then, people have just been borrowing things off it to keep the other ones flying. So we we uh, we got a stripped-out Hulk with no engines, no undercarriage, no, nothing in the cockpit. Yep. The tail was off, the droop nose was off, uh, half the windows missing, um, uh, no cabin furnishings. And we got that, which we cut into five sections to move, and 26 truckloads of spares. And out of that, we rebuilt a Concorde. Wow. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so there were there, there were the, uh, the eight BA1s, that obviously went to, well, um, East Fortune in Scotland, Manchester, Bristol, um, and here in the UK, um, and to uh, New York, uh, Barbados, and Seattle uh, in the States. So that was the eight BA ones, including ours. Um, Yeovilton as well. Oh no, Yeovilton and Duxford have got the the two oh, British the prototypes. prototypes. Oh, right. They were never BA aeroplanes. Um, so that's all ten British Concords accounted for. Um, on the French side, obviously one was lost in the Paris crash, uh, and one had been damaged in a heavy landing at Dakar uh, back in the 1980s, okay. uh, and that one 
was eventually repaired and flown home, but never flew again, uh, and it was it was dismantled. Uh, so there were only eight um, French ones to go, and so one went to Le Bourget, uh, one went to Charles de Gaulle alongside the original French prototype. Uh, there's one in uh, Germany, one in Washington. There's one missing there somewhere. Um, oh, there's two at Toulouse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, um, yeah, so, yeah, the, we museums who have them are very lucky to have them. Uh, they've involved a huge amount of work. Oh, in, in our case, yeah, we had to literally take the aeroplane apart and put it back together. Um, but the, the end result was um, after we opened it to the public back in 2006, we had an enorm enormous surge in visitor numbers. I'd guaranteed the trustees, because we were committed to a huge amount of money to do that, yeah, yeah. and I, I reckoned, told the trustees that I could get at least a 10% increase in visitor numbers if, we, uh, if I was allowed to go ahead and do it. Yeah. And after the initial surge, we settled down with visitor numbers 40% above where they'd been uh, previously and growing at a faster rate. And so, yeah, uh, and it literally was the financial salvation of the museum. Um, a huge in uh, initial investment by ourselves, uh, by uh, other companies that helped us, uh, British Airways in particular, uh, helped us take the thing apart uh, in addition to lending us the aeroplane. It still belongs to British Airways. Air France sold theirs for a euro each, but um, okay. the, uh, the British ones still belong to BA. Yeah. And huge volunteer input. And even with all that commercial help and so forth, uh, the whole project, including doing the simulator, came to about a million and a quarter. And I suppose we had to, uh, you know, commercial stuff... Uh, companies paid for about half of that, okay. and uh, we had to we had to raise the rest one way and the other. Yep. So it was a big it was a big financial gamble, but it paid off. Well, well done, <laughs> fantastic. Very proud of it. Yeah, and we're still yeah we still got ten Concorde captains on the uh, on the roster who are teaching people how to fly Concorde on the simulator. Brilliant, brilliant. So, um, what does the future hold? Is there any big projects coming up? Like there are, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think yeah, the the museum's in a in a sort of uh, state of transition. Um, it used to be a museum with a with a with an educational with a strong educational bent to it. It's it's almost becoming um, an educational institution which uses history yep. uh, to, to to do the teaching, right. and so. It's, it's advancing quite rapidly in that direction with our Innovation Academy. We've got the Heritage Skills Academy down here uh, teaching apprentices how to uh, restore and maintain old motor vehicles. Um, and so there's a whole lot going on there, but there's some huge projects now um, that, that we're trying to cycle through. I've uh, just finished a million-pound refurbishment of the clubhouse um, bringing it up to date it's a grade two listed building so you have to be very careful how you do yep. that yep. Um, but for the first time in its life it now has a passenger lift that takes people up to the first floor oh, right. um, <laughs> whereas in the past uh, for, the, for the last 15 years we've relied on using a stair lift which is oh, a terrible yeah. thing yep. um, but um, then 
We've got a, a, a the next big project will probably be uh, we want to move the public entrance from where it is coming across a little pedestrian footbridge to coming over a bigger bridge that we own um, into the centre of the site rather than to one end of it. Okay. And that would mean a new shop, new entrance building. Um, our motoring displays were pretty good state-of-the-art stuff back in the 1990s, but when you look at them now compared with the standard of what we've done in here, yes. you know, this is this is now the, the benchmark, yeah. and so uh, there'll be a total uh, revamping of the motoring displays to bring them up to beyond this standard, yeah. you know, because in five years time this will need refreshing uh, and we don't want to so we don't want the motoring stuff to just come up to this standard it's got to go beyond that so this has then got something to chase Um, we have um, two enormously historic sections of ancient motor racing track which are uh, in increasing peril uh, the banking and also part of the Campbell circuit um, ancient concrete uh, the stuff on the banking is six inches thick, unreinforced. It's 100 and whatever it is now, 115 years old. Yeah. Uh, it's in terrible condition. Uh, that needs to be uh, that needs to be stabilised. Uh, you know, even if it doesn't get fully restored, it, it can't get any. It can't be allowed to get any worse than it is at the moment. Yeah. And then the uh, the elephant in the room is the collection of seven big aeroplanes sitting outside. Right. Um, and to display them properly, they're, they're an enormously important collection. Uh, they tell the whole story of so mainly civil uh, aircraft development from the end of the Second World War. Um, so 1946, the Vickers Viking, it's basically a Wellington wing uh, and control surfaces and engines with an ugly fat several fuselage yep. stuck on it yep. piston powered tail dragger unpressurized um, you come up through um, varsity which was a military trainer but basically a viking on tricycle undercarriage yep. and then into viscount the first turbine powered aircraft to enter service um, vanguard the the big second generation turboprop vc10 uh, the 111 and then to concord uh, Concord first flew in 1969, so there's a 23 year gap between that unpressurized, tail dragging, piston powered airliner up to Concord, yeah, twice the speed of sound, uh, yeah, the fastest uh, airliner ever to go into service. 23 years. There were people who worked on the Viking in 1946 who were working on Concord in 1969. Wow. The same design office yeah. did. The Viking and did Concord, yeah, you know, and that's an amazing story. Yeah, and you know, no other collection has that sort of um, link. You know, um, you know the, the Boeing, the uh, Museum of Flight in Seattle, uh, is probably the the only equivalent, yeah. um, really, where, where you've got that sort of thing. And even then, they've got a supersonic airliner, but it wasn't built at Boeing. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, to, this is the only place. Uh, in the world where you can see that connection and also you know this place uh, uh, was responsible uh, for 18,600 aeroplanes that, yeah. that flew out of here uh, it's a, and we don't think there's anywhere else in Europe that can match that okay. um, 
so you know the, there's a there's a lot to be learned there but that collection of seven air- aircraft really needs to be undercover you've got to display them properly you, know, you can't jam them in on top of each other to display them properly we need an eight thousand square meter roof over their heads yeah and um you know, an eight thousand square meter roof costs a uh, uh, an eight figure sum and the first integer in that sum is not a one no. <laughs> he, he said carefully. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that is an enormous challenge. You know, how we raise the money. Yeah, as I say, this, the, this, the, the aircraft factory, the flight shed, and the restoration of the finishing straight was about a £9 million project. Right. And we're talking you know, double that again. Yeah. Um, in fact, triple that again to, to do the next things that we want to do in stages. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, we've just got to keep up uh, doing doing the routine stuff. As I say, you know, this will need refreshing in five years. Uh, you know, we we want to do more with our with, with our library and archive collection. We need to do more with our educational buildings. You know, it just the list goes on. Yes. Uh, so, uh, it's a massive venture. Uh, trying to keep it going, um, and uh, we sometimes pinch ourselves and think, well, uh, it's only it was only 1991 that the museum officially opened, right. and we've achieved quite a lot in that time. Absolutely, yeah. phenomenal, really. Yeah. And you look at a lot of museums that are eclectic collections with cars and aeroplanes and you know lots of old stuff, yeah. and they just they get to a point and then they start running down and running down and. Yeah. And this one, this one looks fantastic. Everywhere I've looked. Yeah, and, and yeah, we're continually trying to refresh it, mm. um, and continually running up against problems. You stuff you think, well, yeah, like like with the motoring village, you know, that was restored, well, yeah, in the nineties in two stages, and you think, well, whew, that's done. Yeah, they're old wooden buildings built to an incredibly low standard in the nineteen twenties. They all need rebuilding again. Right. Right, yeah, right. so you know, thirty years on, yeah. they they need doing again, and it's like that all the time. Hopefully, this building we've we've re-engineered this to a to an incredibly high level, and uh, we think you know this is this is good. It it stood in its original form for seventy five years. Uh, it was had a design life of about ten years, um, and what we did to it this time, we think yeah this this is good for a long term. <coughs> it won't need. Much structural work done to it, but you know the uh, the exhibits we will definitely need to refresh, um, and new things come along. And still a few a few exhibits we would like on the aviation side. Um, yeah, and if we got any of them, we'd have to do a revamp. Yes, to of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, um, that all I can say is I'm really impressed, uh, and I wasn't really entirely sure what to expect because I hadn't done too much. Research into it. I wanted to surprise myself, and I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. It's a fantastic place. And have you managed to get around all the uh, all the various bits and pieces? Uh, Most of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the the aviation side, the highlight. This this place is yeah. is special. But that that hangar with the Vimy and the um, transatlantic uh, Harrier in it. Yes. That's just such a magic building to me. You know, you've got a replica flyable of the first aircraft to fly the Atlantic and to fly to Australia and to fly to South Africa. Yep. That aeroplane's done all of it. You've got you've got that the actual aeroplane that won the transatlantic air race that was organised to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Vimy flying. Yes. 
and they are sitting next to a Concorde, which was the fastest ever passenger aircraft across the Atlantic. Couldn't be better, really, yeah. could it? And it's all, yeah, it's all numbers. Yeah, yeah. The the Alcock and Brown's Atlantic flight. You will have noticed we've got their statues outside as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was 1919, and 50 years later. Uh, Tom Leckie Brown flew that Harrier across the Atlantic, and that was the same year that Concorde first flew. Yeah, and you just say, "Wow!" You know, all those things happened yeah. in the space of fifty years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just that Con- uh, just that uh, Harrier story alone, yeah. the whole story of that air race is incredible. Yeah. I, I yeah. discovered the film on YouTube, yeah. Uh, yeah. and it was it was madness, but it was brilliant. It was yeah, such yeah, a yeah. great. It was race. a very British thing to do. It was absolutely. <laughs> I love it. It, it needs to be made into a movie or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah, really fantastic stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think yeah, the, the thing that, that sets Brooklyn's apart from most of the other uh, museums around the place is it actually happened here, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Things happened here. The museums were built here. The third of every Concorde was built here. Yeah, yeah the car, yeah, the world land speed record was set here three times. You know, modern motor racing actually started here you know racing on a closed circuit you know why uh, uh, and because it started here and there was no precedent on how to run motor races on a closed circuit they borrowed the rules of horse racing which is why when you go to a grand prix these days you know the cars are in a paddock um you know there are stewards uh, all these things came out of horse racing okay i didn't know that yeah. yeah um and that all happened here first Brilliant. Yeah, and so you see, the whole site was 365 acres, which is about the same size as uh, Hyde Park in London. And you think just how much stuff happened here in this one little corner of Surrey. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, it's no wonder the place is sort of, uh, we reckon, Brooklyn's as a sort of incurable disease. You know, you, you, you get involved with it and you just can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Um, so, listeners, you've got to make sure you come here. It's a it, it's it's a hallowed ground, really, isn't it, for anyone who's into motorsport or it, it really is. And the, and the links between the two, you know, yeah. because there's uh, all these links between the aviation side. You know, when Sunbeam built their twin-engine land-speed record car, the first to do 200 miles an hour, the bodywork was designed in the Vickers Wind Tunnel here. You right. know, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, our greatest motor car, the Napier Railton, has a Napier Lion aeroplane engine in it. It was built here yep. on this site um, and lives here now. You know, just just amazing. All these all these links backwards and forwards between um, aviation and motoring. Um, one of the best ones is. Uh, in the First World War, there were the only official, officially sanctioned motorsport that took place during First World War was two motorcycle race meetings held here right. in 1915. Okay. And amongst the the forces motorcyclists who raced here in 1915 was, for instance, Frank Halford, who went on to uh, you know, design the the first the Napier opposed piston engines, built the Halford Racing Special, uh, then, then, but then went on to design the uh, the De Havilland jet engines. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's, there's stuff like that all over the place. The links between aviation and motoring. Brilliant. so strong. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Alan. It's been a pleasure to uh, 
to chat with you and um, congratulations on an amazing museum. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Thank you.